Part Two, Chapter Four, of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chuck Williamson. Life and Lillian Gish, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part Two, Chapter Four, A Studio on Pico Street. California Sunshine, California Zinfandel, Doctor's Orders, Fifty Cents a Gallon, Open Air and Exercise, Worked Their Miracles. The pictures were made out of doors. Even the interior sets were on an outside stage with daylight illumination, and there were many westerns with writing. In no time, Lillian, like Dorothy and the others, went racing over the hills behind Los Angeles. An Indian, a cowboy, a settler, a pursued heroine, sometimes all of those things in one day, for there was no star aristocracy in Griffith's troupe. One might be a star one hour, and an extra the next, and nobody cared, and everybody was happy. And Lillian grew well, and physically hardened to the demands of picture-making, by no means light. Her writing practice with the Indian girl at Shawnee came in handy now. A horse, even a wild one, had no terrors for her. In one of the early pictures, Lillian, with two men, Raoul Walsh and George Siegman, were chosen for some special riding. The horses were ranged ponies. One of them looked dangerous. The men regarded him doubtfully. Lillian said, I'll take him. He seemed to her no worse than those she had ridden in Oklahoma. They swept by the camera beautifully, but they were supposed to turn and do it again. The others turned, but Lillian's horse went on. His nose was toward the ranch. There were some trees and bushes, and he tore through them to get her off his back. Now it happened that an Indian, a real Indian, named Eagle Eye, lay asleep among the bushes, and the pounding hoofs awakened him. A real Indian knows what to do under such circumstances. He leaped straight from his nap, caught the mad pony's bridle, and the heroine was saved. In another picture, she had to jump from the buckboard, behind a runaway team, to a cowboy's arms. Christy Cabanet was the director, and Bobby Burns of the Burns Brothers, who did most of the dangerous riding, was the cowboy rescuer. Lillian had no fear of the jump. Her faith in Bobby was perfect, but the pony he was riding sank beneath a suddenly added weight and nearly went down. Closest and most dangerous thing I ever did, Bobby said. When it was over. 
Lillian loved California, and why not? It had given her new freedom, and with it, her health. News came of the arrival of Nell's baby. Incredible to think of Nell with a baby. Oh, Nell, does it really belong to you? And a few lines further along. This is a wonderful country. How I wish you could be here. It would do you so much good. It is just like summer, and they have wonderful mockingbirds and beautiful nights. I do not know the name of Lillian's first California picture, nor the sequence of those that followed. Nobody today seems to remember these things, and they are not very important. There was a good deal of sameness about the westerns, and most of them were that. A misunderstood boy was among the titles, just gold, and the lady and the mouse. And as Griffith was turning out pictures at the rate of one or two, and even three a week, short films in those days, these titles suggest no more than brief stages of preparation for the day a year or two later when he would begin to write the greater picture story across the screens of the world. And they did something for Lillian and Dorothy. They taught them the technique and mechanics of film photography, in and out of doors, and their alert minds absorbed it as by instinct. It was only a little while until Griffith discussed his pictures with them, asked their suggestions, and something more. The public recognized their faces from the pictures of the previous summer and began to inquire who they were. One day, Lillian was interviewed. Surely this was coming on. The reporter had heard of Belasco's verdict. It had run ahead of her and was known and repeated in California almost as soon as she arrived. The reporter wrote about Belasco, and then on his own account, called her Lillian the Adorable. It was pleasant, of course, to be written of like that, but she wished she had said more about her pictures. She led the next reporter around to them, explaining that her work was the important thing. He asked her what one must do to be a screen actress and quoted her as saying, To play for the pictures is mostly a matter of the face and the inside. You have to learn to think inside. Being a young reporter, he was willing to believe that it was a matter of the face, her face, a tea-rose, he called it, reflected in a moonlit mirror. Also, he spoke of ivory and pale jade and of other things not closely related to acting. There was no Hollywood in that halcyon day, no picture Hollywood. That particularly irrational corner of the universe had as yet neither name nor fame. The Biograph Studio was in Los Angeles on Pico Street a building thought to be rather large, 
being one hundred or one hundred and fifty feet long, a narrow shack, used chiefly as a carpentry shop, and for dressing rooms, one each, for men and women. As before mentioned, the photography was done on a stage set up outside, by daylight. There were sliding curtains above, like those in a photography gallery, which is about all it was. The curtains controlled the sun, but the wind blew in, and candles flickered. Tablecloths waved ghostily, and occasionally something blew off the shelf, even in a perfectly still room. When it rained, they went into the carpentry shop and rehearsed. Often, the younger ones rehearsed while the older ones watched them. Always they rehearsed on rainy days. They spoke whatever words came into their heads, except during silent rehearsals, when they were supposed to convey the meaning in pantomime. Griffith wrote most of his own plays, scenarios, a good many more than he needed. He could not afford to have them tried out by expensive people, so he used helpers, extras, stagehands, anybody, for preliminary rehearsals. Sometimes it happened that a very humble servitor put astonishing life and conviction into what he or she was doing, and Griffith was just the person to recognize it. Bobby Heron, a property boy, had been like that. And there would be many others, including Constance Talmadge, Wallace Reed, and Valentino. It was Dorothy who suggested giving a part to Valentino, Griffith demurred, on the ground that he didn't believe he would be popular with women. Too foreign-looking. <laughs> Amazing conclusion. But Rudy was cruder then. Perhaps Minkin's catnip to women would not have been so neat a turn. They were a busy crowd in the Pico Street studio. Griffith had a vacant lot out back, and those not in the scenes were sent there to limber up, to practice running and walking, arm movements, a variety of gymnastic work all in the direction of a better expression of emotions. Long hours. For many of the pictures, they had to get up in the dark, to be on location by sunrise. Hard days in the field, home late, hot, hungry, and ready for bed. And always, those not in the action were rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing or prancing up and down that deadly lot, making muscle for the next job. They ate how and when they could. Something was taken along by those who went to the field. The others grabbed a sandwich or a plate of soup, or pie and milk from the white kitchen, a tiny nearby shack. Abbreviated luncheons were sometimes brought to the set, studio food. That is, something not messy, nor especially appetizing. Experimental luncheon places were tried in the studio, 
but not very successfully. There was nothing resembling dissipation among the biograph group. On the contrary, there was an atmosphere of earnest study and thought, stimulated by Griffith, himself a voluminous and inclusive reader. The young women, especially, rather put on airs in their devotion to research and philosophy. Nietzsche, Strindberg, Schopenhauer, Spinoza, these were their favorites. What time they found to read them, it is difficult to see now. Nights and Sundays, perhaps. At all events, they did read them, or read at them, and discussed them feverishly during any spare moments. Blanche Sweet, May Marsh, Lillian and Dorothy, Miriam Cooper, Anita Luz. These chiefly were the students. Anita Luz was in the scenario department, and very keen, one of the best posted. Anita discussed so much, and so capably, that Griffith called her Madame Spinoza. When it happened they made a picture that touched upon anything historic or geographic, they tried to read up for color, costume, background. Lillian reveled in such research. Swiftly, eagerly, she added to her knowledge of the past, of life in general. The others were like that, too, more or less. Did those girls have sweethearts? I asked Griffith, a little while ago. I don't know. I don't remember any. I don't see where they would have found time for them. Today, Stars and others make one big production, and have long waits between. We had nothing like that. We were producing every day. The demand was good, and not many companies. It was a different world. Such a little while ago. Less than twenty years. Just yesterday. But thinking of it now, and of all that has come, and gone since then, it seems somehow a golden age. I like to think of Lillian in that truly lovely environment, that garden between dawn and sunrise, among those wholesome, beautiful girls and those strong, handsome young men, all busy at a work which, however crude and inconsequential it may seem today, brought cheer and comfort to the millions, then. I like to think of her and Dorothy dashing along the hillsides, on range ponies as painted Indians or whooping cowboys. I like to think of them with their mother, in their apartment at Brentwood, digging into the books which now, for the first time, they could afford to buy making up as far as might be for the insufficient years. How starved they were for books! They would drop into a bookshop for one and come out with an armful. Before they knew it, they were acquiring a library. Life was becoming worthwhile. Lillian to Nell, 
the world unfolds itself to me more and more every day and sometimes it seems so bright then it changes for the most part she thought herself very well off in a world where no one is more than passably happy and increasingly devoted herself to her work she began to train her facial muscles to obey her to reflect her thoughts you must think inside she had told the reporter by which she meant i suppose that one must do one's own thinking rather than merely reflect the thought of the director must persuade one's muscles all of one's muscles and members unconsciously to obey the inward thought think inside and your trained body will take care of itself might have been her creed not all players could adopt it some could hardly be said to think at all thought the director's thought filtered through them griffith found her always willing eager to listen but not pliable more and more he left her alone lately he said to the writer dorothy was more apt at getting the director's idea than lillian quicker to follow it more easily satisfied with the result lillian conceived an ideal and patiently sought to realize it genius is like that the ideal becomes real to it from his lofty hotel window david wark griffith looked out across the tops of babylon reflectively he added she is the best actress in new york the best i know she has the most brains joseph metal patterson once said to me lillian gish has the best mind of any woman i ever met but i knew that already end of part two chapter four